Welcome to the Adoption Connection Podcast, where we offer resources to equip you and stories to inspire you on your adoption journey. I'm Lisa Qualls. And this is Melissa Corkum. Don't worry, we get it, and we're here for you. Well, hey, friends, welcome to episode number 207 of the podcast. My guests today are Josh and Jen Hook, who I know through the Replanted Conference. They've written a wonderful new book, and I had the privilege of reading it early and getting to write the forward for the book. And I'm telling you, as I read, I just kept thinking, this is so good. This is so needed. So I'm really excited for you to hear from them. We're going to be talking about a couple specific topics from the book. But first, I want Josh and Jen to go ahead and introduce themselves to you. Yeah, well, I'm Jen. Uh, Josh is my husband. So we co-wrote this book together, which is fun. Um, and I... Uh, and the founder and executive director of the Replanted Ministry. So we help launch support groups for families uh, and kids around the country. And then we host an annual Replanted conference that we also simulcast um, out to the community. So I got my master's degree in clinical psychology and worked as a therapist in the foster care system for a number of years, which is really where my passion came from. Um, and Josh, I'll let you introduce yourself. Sure. Yeah. Great to be here, Lisa. Um, again, my name is Josh Hook and I am a professor at the University of North Texas and I teach psychology. So I teach, I do research, supervise students, things like that. I'm also a licensed clinical psychologist in the state of Texas. Uh, yeah. In terms of, um, we, we met, you know, several years ago, got married. And since then I've been helping out Jen with, with some of the, re- the replanted stuff that she does. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was fun to write this book together. Well, tell me, first of all, tell us the title of the book. And then I'd love to hear just briefly, what, why did you write it? What, what did you see that was needed? Uh, the book is called Thriving Families, uh, and it's a trauma informed guidebook for foster and adoptive families. And I think this book really came out of a lot of, um, experiences as that we've had and, and what we try to really accomplish with the replanted conference. I think a lot of families um, have more of an understanding now of trauma-informed care when it comes to um, raising kids impacted by adoption and foster care. But there's so much more uniqueness to the journey that we don't necessarily unpack in a really raw way. And so we really wanted to be transparent and talk about um, you know, how to foster a positive identity with your kids. Like, how do you honor their story? How do you honor their birth families and relationships? Um, if that's an option, uh, what does it look like to honor their race and culture? Um, a lot of different things like that. So we wanted to go beyond that trauma informed care and say, Hey, there, it, it goes so much deeper than this. There's always grief and loss when it comes to adoption and foster care. How do we honor all the complexities, all the feelings and experiences that our kids have had? Um, and so, yeah, we just took a deep dive into all of that. A lot of it comes from my experience as a therapist and the kids and their stories that they've shared with me um, and just uh, kind of opening my eyes to their experiences and realizing like, oh, this is deeper. <laughs> you know, this is more complicated than I thought. And and stories, too, that we hear at the Replanted Conference when we have voices of birth parents and adoptees and foster alum on the stage. You know, these are voices that are really important to hear from, but um, can really shape and make us the best professionals and parents possible uh, when we can step into to all of the complexities and uniqueness of the journey. Oh, uh, the only thing I would add is, you know, parenting is so difficult and you don't get a, a manual or, and oftentimes you don't get much training to do it. So 
Um, I think there's a lot that we know from counseling and psychology that can be helpful for parenting and particularly parenting children who've been adopted or uh, spent time in foster care. But a lot of times parents, I feel like, don't get that information unless they go to counseling themselves or unless they uh, maybe attend a conference like Replanted. And so I think part of our hope was to package some of those helpful, practical things in one place so that parents could have access to it. Yeah. When I was reading the book, I just kept thinking, wow, I don't think I've read, I don't think anybody else that I know in our circles has really written about some of these topics. And I, and I did find myself thinking, I know it's so cliche, but it's sort of like, this is the book I needed. (laughs) You know, like I do feel we were pretty reasonably prepared for trauma, somewhat prepared for attachment challenges, but there were a lot of things that you know, we were so well-intentioned, but we did not really think years and years down the road to some of the challenges. And and one in particular that I thought would be so helpful to talk about is the, you know, connecting across the cultures, like the culture of your family, the culture of the child entering your home, entering your family. It's a really helpful thing to think about that I think a lot of us don't just don't you know, or we do, but only on a surface level and we just don't dive into it. So I thought it'd be great if you would just start by defining really what culture is so that then we can talk about this in terms of our adoptive and foster families. It's it's a little bit of a broad term. So sometimes it's hard to nail down. But what I think of is that each of us has a particular way that we see the world. Um, and that is impacted or, or, or we get that because we grew up in certain contexts or groups um, that taught us about how to be, what's important, what we should value, what we should believe, um, et cetera. You know, for a lot of us, our culture is influenced by uh, a variety of identities that we are, are uh, make up who we are and groups that we're a part of. So, for example, our religion or our race or ethnicity or national, our country of origin, our language, our gender, et cetera. And, and all those things kind of come together and influence how we view the world and our values. You know, and, and I think the, the probably maybe one of the take home points here is that when you uh, um, are an adoptive parent or foster parent, the, the, the culture that your child is bringing to the table isn't necessarily going to be the same as your own. Culture can be kind of invisible. Like we can just think that or assume that other people see the world the way we do and believe the same things and value the same things. And that's not necessarily the, the, accurate. I mean, I was just even thinking I grew up in Canada. I lived there till I was 28. And then I came to the US and even just that culture shock of coming from a different country um, and, and moving to Chicago first and now Dallas, you know, was a huge adjustment for me. Um, and I had, you know, a great support system and w- was part of uh, groups that were pretty similar in terms of religious beliefs and things like that. And it was still a huge adjustment, you know, so you can imagine a child that's had us, you know, been in a family has been functioning um, with a certain way of life. Maybe they are from a different country, different ethnicity. Um, and then they a lot of times families think, well, the, the child comes into my home, and they're just going to kind of morph into our ecosystem. And that's really hard. And that's a hard expectation to even put on a child. 
Um, and so that's something that we really wanted to press into in the book. You know, this is important and this is a really big piece of your child's identity. And if you don't foster that and nourish that, um, there can be resentment later. There can be, you know, there's just a lot that can come out, um, of, of that lack of experience, um, or lack of intentionality with a family. And so, and I think Josh is right. There can be this invisible part of culture, right? When we have some assumptions, I, I remember working with kids, um, in foster care and they would come into a family's home and the family had different, you know, Christmas traditions than what they were used to. And that was even hard, right? Like, Oh, we're used to running, you know, getting up whenever we want because Santa came and we're opening our presents and, you know, the foster family's experience was like, no, we do um, breakfast together first. And then we open gifts and, you know, there can just be even simple things like that, that aren't the same, but can cause a child to feel like they're, they've lost part of themselves um, and, and their experience or something they valued. So it's important to foster uh, and press into as a family. Yeah. One thing that came to mind when you were talking about that is we had a foster daughter come to us kind of unexpectedly. She was a teenager um, from our state, but from a very small town, a distance away from us, very different cultures. Even though we were the same race, we were, you know, we were all from the same state, but very different cultures. And I remember when we were coming up on the holidays and we realized that one of our favorite Christmas cookies that we made was the same one that her grandmother made. Mm. And she actually called her grandmother to get the recipe, to compare it to ours. And it was like just this little tiny thing, but it was a little tiny bridge between what she'd grown up with and what we, how we celebrated and you know, I had to learn actually a lot about her culture and you wouldn't think it would be that different, but it really, it really, really was. And then also we entered, we adopted internationally. And just recently, my uh, daughter who was born in Ethiopia, she came home at, at 10 and she's uh, 22 now. I, I'd have to think about that. Anyhow, she said to me, mom, I never realized how really Ethiopian I am until I moved to Portland. She said, you know, I knew that I looked Ethiopian and everything, but she said, the way I think, I think like an Ethiopian. I said, okay, that is so fascinating. You know, tell me more. Mm -hmm. But how great would it have been if I'd had a little more understanding of that when she was growing up, you know, and not just us all figuring it out now. You know, I'm thankful, but still. So, okay, so what can adoptive and foster parents do to do better, do better than I did? You know, what, (laughs) how can they prepare and really, try to understand the cultural differences and how to bridge them. So, so one thought is kind of an underlying attitude to have. And, and for me that the important one is humility. And when it comes to culture and the idea that um, if, if you can kind of get, get to the place where you think, okay, my way of viewing the world is, is one way of viewing the world and it, and it's worked for me. And, and I like that way of viewing the world, but it's not the only way. And my child may have a different perspective and that's okay. Rather than viewing uh, differences as, as kind of a right wrong idea, just kind of viewing them as different and both kind of okay ways of, of viewing things. I think, I think that's really important. The other thing I, I would mention is uh, taking the initiative to try to learn and involve yourself in your child's cultural background. For example, if they're of a different race, or, you know, different country of origin, maybe learning about that or going to visit, or at least, at least offering opportunities to, for the child to get involved in learning about their cultural background. You know, one thing we had, 
a couple of years ago, we did a research study where we looked at, uh, we interviewed children or well, adult adoptees now, but they were in a transracial family and talked to them about just some of the things that they experienced and some of the things that they thought were important. And one of the things they mentioned, and this is borne out in our experience, just talking with people too, is that I think kids go kind of fluctuate in how engaged they are or want to be engaged with their learning about their culture or race or ethnicity. So sometimes they're more engaged. Sometimes they, you know, they're worried about making the soccer team and that's, that's their priority. So I think for, in, in my opinion, I think parents can offer and, you know, keep being engaged and keep offering opportunities, but letting the child lead with that. And then one other thing I would mention, and this is sometimes kind of difficult for parents to think about is if you have a child who's from a different culture, like a different uh, racial background, for example, think about think about your context and where you're living. And is there a way to integrate or, or be in relationship with families and community that share your child's uh, cultural background in a, in a natural way? You know, I think sometimes parents, uh, you know, one of the other, one of the other um, adult adoptees in this study we did uh, shared that she went to college. She grew up in a, she was an African-American woman grew up in an area that was predominantly white and went to college in an urban area. And one of the things she thought was like, why didn't we live in this city? You know, cause it was one of the first times that she was, had friends and community and went to church in a, in a multiracial church. And so I think that's something to think about. Like, can you be in an environment where, where your children feel more at home um, being, being in the racial group that they are? Yeah, I think that's super important. And we even take it a step further with that, too. Like a lot of the stories that we've experienced are um, transracial adoptees or foster youth that go into white families. And that's their experience is acclimating to the white culture. And I think that can be really hurtful. And a lot of adoptees and foster youth feel hurt by that and kind of and, and really struggle with that piece of their identity. But also as a parent, I think it's really important to take a deeper look. You know, we talk a lot, people, I, I'll hear parents say this, like, oh, I don't see color, or, you know, they'll make comments like that as if, you know, that's a, a, a great thing. But it's actually important to see that piece of your child, uh, that they are African American or Asian or whatever it might be, and to really honor that their experience in life is going to be different than ours. The thing is, as well, if you have a child come into your family and you expose them to only white culture, you're really communicating something um, to them uh, that you might not be intending to, but it, it can be, I love you, but I don't really love any other African-Americans or other Asians because the only people that I care to have in my life are white people. Um, and that can send a message to your child. Um, and I know parents aren't intending to, but it's really important that why don't you have African-American friends or, you know, um, to be able to, and what's the barrier there? You know, um, can you go to an African-American church or go, yeah, live in a more urban area and expose your child to that part of their identity? That's a really important piece. You know, I, uh, there, there was one guy that spoke at our replanted conference a few years ago. Uh, he was African-American and grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood. And when he was an adult, he wanted to go to a barber. And he, he tells a story of driving up to a barber shop and just like didn't, couldn't get out of his car because he didn't feel, he's like, I don't, I'm not white. I don't feel white, but I also don't feel like I fit in here either. 
Um, and so he felt uncomfortable getting out of his car to go into um, see a black barber, you know, and we hear stories like that a lot. You know, I was the only Asian child in my whole school. Right. Um, and that can be really hard for a child to be trying to figure out their identity around race and culture and then to be having kind of this subtle, not even subtle, pretty overt <laughs> expectation of like, we're all wearing a white culture, you know. And so I think it's really important for parents to uh, really consider when they're going to bring a child into their family, what am I willing to do? Um, am I willing to step outside of my own comfort and my, uh, you know, what, you know, my friend group and my church group and my, um, my neighborhood is to meet my child's um, very important identity needs around this, you know, and if the answer is you can't, then you should consider um, whether that is a, a placement you should say yes to or not, because this is something that is really starting to harm our kids. And we're hearing this now from the voices of adoptees. Um, you know, adult adoptees and foster youth that th this is something they wish that their families had pushed into. And I think too, for, you know, sometimes international adoption or kids that come into our families at birth, you know, we're kind of thinking, oh, it's a blank slate, you know, um, that's not important. But when you look different, it is, you know, and so it's really important that families um, try to meet that need as much as they can. The the point that you said, I think is really important about the, the, the harmfulness of the, of the kind of like the, I don't see color or you know, we're all part of it. We're, we're all part of the human race, et cetera. And, and even, even for Christians, I see this a lot that there's kind of a sense of like, we're all Christians and that identity should supersede all others. And I think there's, there's some truth to that, that our identities as a Christian is something that can bind us together. But when don't kind of honor and acknowledge the specific experiences of our children who might be from a different racial background, that can minimize their experience and be hurtful because the reality is they probably do interact differently or, ha or have different experiences from others or people treat them differently because of their race. And for us to say like, no, that's not happening. It, it can be hurtful and not honor that their experience. Yeah. I definitely, as my children grew older, I became more and more aware that I needed to understand better and, you know, I've got two teenage sons who are black, uh, they're Ethiopian, and I see them navigating the world. I realize uh, one, one good thing is I am very happy to ask for help. So when they do have someone like a black coach or something, I don't want to appear over eager, but I'm always like, you know, thank you so much for being part of my son's life. I just, there are so many things you can speak into his life that I can't. And I just welcome you to do that, you know? And so I try to build a little bit of a bridge, but how great would it be if we actually had a more ethnically diverse church? I mean, we do somewhat actually for where I live, but, but still, I'm just aware of my lack or my town's lack, our family's lack, where I wish we had done even better earlier on you know, than, than we have done. I think Lisa, I think Lisa, you bring up a great point there. And I think that's another important thing to recognize is that as parents, we can't be all things to our kids, right? So if, um, if your child is from a different racial background, it's really important to get them involved in with, with people, whether it be role models, coaches, teachers, et cetera, people from church in the community, who can maybe offer um, a piece of learning around their racial identity and development that you may not 
kind of be aware of or not know the ins and outs of. So I think that's, that can also even really like lessen some pressure on us to know that we, sometimes we, we don't have, can't have it at all to bring to our kids. They need, we need a village. We need people around them as well. Yeah. One of my boys basketball coaches um, actually took him and his best friend who's biracial, not adoptive, but biracial boy out to lunch. And he messaged both of us moms and just said, Hey, I would really like to do this, but I want your approval first, but I really want them to know that I'm here for them. And I could have cried. I was like, please, please yeah. take my child to lunch. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, spend yeah. time with him. He needs, he needs these role models too. So yeah. yes, it is a learning curve. And, and I would say too, I don't think it's ever too late. I mean, how great it would be if we all knew this from the very beginning, mm-hmm. but even for those of us who are learning as our, even if our kids are a little older, it is never too late to keep learning, to keep um, embracing their culture. And, you know, like my daughter lives in Portland and <clears throat> I realized there's so many things like I should, when I go visit her, we need to go to an Ethiopian church. We need, I mean, it's fine to go to an Ethiopian restaurant once in a while, but that is not enough. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I can, I can do more. I can do better. Yeah. So anyhow. Yeah. And I think too, it's like, uh, like Josh had mentioned earlier, it, it can fluctuate. Like I remember one of our speakers, um, uh, she was adopted from foster care sharing, like she grew up in India, came to the U S and one of the things when they got here, her and her sister were like, we don't, we want to acclimate, you know, we want to be like the white girls. And, you know, for at that point, like there, there was probably nothing their foster family was going to be able to do to honor uh, their culture and their, um, their ethnicity, um, because for them, they, they just wanted to fit in in school. They didn't want to be any more different than they were growing up in foster care. There was all these other variables that were going on in their lives, you know, but as she became an adult, she realized like, it's, I'm Indian and that's beautiful. And I want to honor that and explore that. And I wish I hadn't like dismissed it. So quickly growing up, but kids growing up, you know, you don't want to get made fun of because you smell like spices and, you know, like, there's so much going on there. Right. So I think following the child's lead too is really, really important, but at at least giving them opportunity and recognizing like, Hey, you're beautiful. You are a gift, you know, um, and, and being able to walk, walk that with them, you know, Mm -hmm. and knowing too, like you could be having, you could have a child right now that's all in and then all out, you know, (laughs) it's going to change. And so as parents, I think it's important to, to have that, um, just kind of being open-handed, um, with the, with the expectations there, you know, that's such a good point. You know, we can't, we can't force it on our kids. And, and I do think these things ebb and flow at different ages, different developmental stages, you know, all of that, like all of life right now for one of my kids is about being on the basketball team. You know, he doesn't between that and school, that's about what, and relationships, that's what he has capacity for, you know, but at other times in the year or in his life, he has more mental space to think about other things. It's just, yeah, we, yeah. we just have to follow. I think we have to be very uh, welcoming and very offering opportunities, but follow their lead a lot too. And I think developmentally we hit de- different developmental milestones as our like brains are developing and maturing too. Um, and so that it, of course it's going to change, you know, but I think too, like even the simple things like Christmas traditions, you know, um, it's important. Like what, what can I incorporate? What, what can we change as a family and pivot to help our child feel more uh, included um, and honoring of some of their favorite experiences and traditions, you know, and not just expecting them to acclimate to what our family does. 
Um, mm-hmm. And I'm, I come from a family of a lot of traditions, so <laughs> <laughs> I know that can be hard to pivot, but it's important. You know, is it okay to like let the child run downstairs and rip into his presence at 5 a.m.? Mm-hmm. Um, because that's what he loved to do with his family. You know, maybe, maybe that's okay, you know? So I think parents as much as they can to look for ways where they can, yeah, just do, make those pivots is really important. Well, and I think you touch on something that is so, so important. I think one of the keys to being, I don't know, I was going to say successful. Well, let's use the word thrive since you're, yeah, there. <laughs> but one of the keys I think to thriving as an adoptive family is that we as, and foster families, we as the parents have to be flexible. Like if we are very rigid in our thinking, this is how we do it. This is how we celebrate holidays. This is how we educate our kids. This is how we eat. This is how we dress. If we're super, super rigid, it's not going to be beneficial to our new children. And um, I think it does make thriving very, very difficult. And I, I think parents who can't be flexible tend to be pretty unhappy. And as a result, their family is not very happy either. So flexibility is super important. <laughs> Yeah, I actually remember working with a family. They were really a musical family. Um, and the placement they got, uh, this little boy was really into soccer and that they wanted him to be musical. And that just wasn't a good fit for him. And it, like, it was a big struggle. You know, I think it's important for kids to, for us to honor who they are too and what they enjoy. Um, and so, yeah, I think you're right when, if, if you're, you can't be flexible there, that is going to cause some problems in the long run, um, especially your relationship with your child, you know? Right. Um, and so, mm-hmm. and I know everyone's listening right now cause that's what they, they want to have a thriving family. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, but I think that's a big part of it. You know, as we're talking about culture, this just leads my brain to be thinking about grief and loss for our kids, mm-hmm. you know, uh, well, obviously with internationally adopted children, they are literally picked up out of their country, their language, their foods, the smells, everything, not to mention their families and the people who love them or even the caregivers in the orphanage. They are picked up out of that. They go on a plane and they are set down in a different world, a totally different world. And so there's obviously the cultural things. Likewise, a foster child might literally be picked up in a car by a caseworker. They have a family culture and they're driven somewhere else. And when they get out and they go in the door of that foster family, it is sometimes like a whole foreign world. So we've got all these cultural issues, but how do we both acknowledge and help our children with the grief and the loss that they're experiencing with all these changes? This one's like, I, I think is so important. Um, and you know, honestly, when I first started my job working as a therapist in foster care or, you know, even pre, pre all of this, I would have been that person like celebrating an adoption or, you know, like if a family was really hoping they could adopt a child, I'd be like, yes, this happened. Like I had, I was so naive to the fact that, um, kids always have experienced grief and loss uh, through adoption and foster care. I think what's really important. Honestly, I feel like this just needs to be almost like a systemic change within adoption and foster care is empathy around that because there is still a lot of, you know, a lot of 
you know, I don't want to say like, I, I understand the joy and excitement around bringing a child into your home, right? I don't want to negate that. I don't want to say it's bad to celebrate um, when a child, you know, uh, if a, a mom makes an adoption plan and, you know, th- there's, um, there can be a lot of joy there, but for the child, there's always grief and loss. And I remember um, seeing, I follow a, f- a few different adoptees and foster alum on social media. And I remember this, uh, this one adoptee, uh, Farrah Swan. Um, had said, you know, um, an adoptive parent's dream come true is a baby's worst nightmare. And that really, that just like hit me, right? Like, yeah, like this baby that has been growing inside its mother and knows her heartbeat and her smell and her voice is taken. And this is an exciting time for an adoptive family, but that baby doesn't know what's going on. And, and, and honestly, I remember like autumn, when she was first born, I was the only person that could comfort her. Like she, Josh couldn't, no one could, as soon as she smelled me or was on my heart, like on my chest, instant calm, you know? And so I just imagine like, um, I think we do a lot of damage when we put the expectation on children that this is a good thing or they should be happy to be here, grateful, you know, their life is better, whatever it might be. And I think that especially is damaging for kids who have been impacted by foster care. I think sometimes we think like you're out of a bad situation and you're in a much better one. But it's like that's we have an innate desire for our biological families and whether they're safe or not, that is still part of who they are and part of their identity. And so it's really important that we don't talk negatively or villainize birth families in any way, because that's, that's their DNA. That's your child's DNA, you know, um, and you communicating that can feel like they're, you're communicating about them. You know, one of the most powerful things that I had experienced when I was working as a therapist was I had a little boy that was unable to reunify with his mom uh, who was addicted to substances. He really wanted to go home. Um, and she, she just couldn't do it. And he was adopted by his foster family and they threw him an adoption party. And he came into the counseling room and was like, this is the saddest day of my life. I have to go to this adoption party because everyone's excited and celebrating. But this is the saddest day of my life because I'm never going to get to go home with my mom again. And so if we don't leave space for all of those feelings, now some kids might be excited, but there's still grief and loss. Like we need to honor that there's the both and when it comes to adoption and um, foster care journeys for our kids. Um, and if we push out those negative feelings, it's going to really hurt our kids. You know, I, I'm sure you've seen them too, Lisa. Like I see those videos of people that surprise the kids with you're getting adopted and the kids like oh, most of the time burst into tears. Now, yeah, maybe that is true joy. They're so excited they're getting adopted, but just maybe it could be tears of like sadness and loss and oh my goodness, I, I'm never going home again. And there could be so much more to those tears. And I think we just need to be really cautious about having only one feeling and experience and kind of putting that on our child and not leaving room for what their experience might be. So it's... It's it's complicated, but yeah, I think I've I've walked alongside a lot of kiddos that just felt really hurt by that, and people not honoring the loss that they've experienced, the loss of their country of origin, their birth families, you know, relationships, mm-hmm. their friends at school, their siblings getting separated from siblings, like they're experiencing such brokenness in their family. That's not the way God intended family to be, you know, and so. Um, uh, adoption does not fix the trauma and the grief and loss that a child's experienced. And for us to think that it does is really hurtful. What would you suggest, Josh, maybe you could speak to this. What would you suggest a family do to be 
sensitive and supportive and help their child with this? Jen, I think, I think you hit the nail on the head that this is complicated. And my, my biggest recommendation would be to, to create space for all the feelings that your child is having. So not to put your expectations or feelings onto your child, but be open. You know, you could ask your child what, you know, how are you feeling? What are you thinking? Um, and have conversations about it and be okay with the range of feelings that come up. And so if your child is sad and, you know, that's okay. It doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you as an adopted parent. It doesn't mean that they don't love you, but they're just also feeling the sadness. And, and you know, a lot of times there's both um, that are present. Uh, the, the, only, the other thing that I think is important is sometimes I think we as parents, because we don't like to see our children in pain or sad or, or that, that makes us uncomfortable. We want to do something to kind of take that away or, or try to cheer the child up or fix it, fix it. Yeah. And so I think that doesn't usually work. I think what works better is, is just providing space, being with your child and in whatever emotions or feelings they're experiencing, comforting the child, trying to understand, empathize. That's, that's probably more the route that, that I would recommend taking. Yeah. I think mirroring their feelings and giving like offering your presence is really important. Um, like Josh said, not pushing, you know, your feelings or trying to fix it or justify it. You know, I think sometimes we can fall into that trap. Like, you know, I, I really wish you could be with your family too, but I'm so glad you get to stay with our family. We love you so much. These things can all be true, but that might not be what the child's feeling right then. Um, and I can even, I I remember my husband and I experienced, uh, we had a hard time getting pregnant and we had a miscarriage. And I remember some family members uh, saying like, oh, I'm so like, so sorry you lost the baby, but at least, you know, you can get your pregnant now. And I was like, time out, like what, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and it was a miss. And I, I had to just say like, hey, I had a miscarriage and I'm supposed to be sad about this. That's okay. You don't need to try to put a bow on it or offer hope. Um, or some sort of encouragement. Um, when you try to do that, a lot of times it feels invalidating and can feel hurtful. And so, you know, if your child is in a sad place to just say, you know, it's okay to be sad about this. Um, you know, I would feel that way too. And just that's it. Leave it, leave it at that. We don't have to try to put the, the happy ending onto it. That will come later, you know, um, but to just fully be mirroring what your child, uh, is experiencing can be helpful. I think too, when kids are kind of in the thick of these emotions, it can be really helpful to see a therapist for them to be processing all of those feelings. Um, and to have also maybe have a therapist helping you as well, know how to support your child the best way you can. Um, cause it can be a lot, you know, how, how do I answer these questions or how do I do all this? I, I think for a child to have a space where they can just be fully raw and real, that's fully theirs can be really helpful as well. Because sometimes I think kids do kind of feel caught between maybe their birth parents and their adoptive or foster parents. And so they feel like they've got to say the right thing or be the right thing. And so um, I think it can be really helpful in that space to just say, you know, here's your person, say anything you want, anything that's on your heart. This is your space, you know, uh, can be really helpful for a child. This, our conversation is giving people just a tiny taste of the wealth of wisdom and the heart behind your new book. I hope that everybody listening is thinking, I I need to get this book. And I want to encourage you to do that. Can you tell people, again, the title of the book and where they can get it? 
and all of that. Let's hear that. Yeah. So it's Thriving Families, a trauma guidebook for foster and adoptive families. Uh, you can get it on Amazon. It's available for pre-order now. Um, and I think the ship date, when is the ship date again, babe? I think January 17th. 17th. Yeah. January 17th. So yeah, it's available on Amazon uh, or through our publisher, Harold Press as well. But um, it's available where you can buy books. So I encourage you to leave a review if you, if yes. you read it and um, and, let, and leave an honest review. You know, we appreciate that. Well, I will just say from my experience of being an author, you all listening, if you think you're going to buy the book, please pre-order it. It actually truly helps the book. Amazon will show it to more people if they have more pre-orders and reviews make all the difference. And you may not think it, but authors, we actually do go read our reviews. We yeah. want to know what people think. <laughs> yeah. And the number of reviews actually helps. Amazon has all its tricky algorithms and it all, it all really helps if people pre-order and if they leave reviews. So, and this episode, you're hearing it about a week before the book comes out. So you have plenty of time, but Josh and Jen, thank you so much for spending this time with me. I, this was worth a lot, even to me. Um, I know that everybody listening has learned something new, something that we can apply for our own families. So thank you for being here. Yeah. Thanks for having us, Lisa. It's great to be with you. Yeah, absolutely. Great to be here. Before you go, we'd love to connect with you on social media. Our new Instagram handle is at post adoption resources. Or better yet, join our free Facebook community at theadoptionconnection.com slash Facebook. Thanks so much for listening. We love having you. And remember, you're a good parent doing good work. The music for the podcast is called New Day and was created by Lee Rosevere.